Good morning. It's always lovely to see all you out. I love God's people. Thank you. I need to know that. <laughs> it helps. Um, we are a peculiar people, zealous of good works. When I say peculiar, I mean it. God meant it. But that's the wonderful thing of the nature of the gospel, that uh, there are sinners being saved. And my desire today, and I, it is a privilege and definitely an honor to speak to the people of God. It is, I hold it in great esteem, those who pursue to speak to God's people. I often wonder why God hasn't struck me down with a thunderbolt because of my sinful nature. But God uses sinners to proclaim the glorious gospel and to draw others by means of his body, which is the church, Christ being the head. And it's a wonderful thing to be a part of that. Keep your fingers in Matthew chapter 14. We'll look at verses 22 through 33. The title of this message is, I just threw it out there, Lord save me. I haven't heard one like that yet, but I think it's important. I think it's very important to know that simple prayer that we'll see Peter praying and how our Lord saved him from drowning. The theme, as you guys know, is Arise move and go. A dear brother, friend of mine, Brother Herman, I asked him, what should I preach? I always like to be told what I should preach, should preach because then it becomes an assignment. And uh, I can say, okay, God, you use that man to tell me what to preach. So it's not coming from me. I don't want it to come from me. I want it to come from God. And I want you guys to understand the importance of such a little prayer because whatever condition you're in, whatever you're going through, it is a, pray that, a prayer that anyone can pray. It's not something hard to remember. It's not a, a doctrinal uh, equation that's hard to put together. It's a very simple prayer that God understands, and he let us understand in this particular text. When you say, Lord, save me, and you mean it, he's going to save you. Amen. Amen? So let us arise, and let us move into our text, and let us go to the Lord and see what he has to to tell to us today according to his word. Now, I want to start out by saying, in the context of the text here, what I am intending to do is to draw out what was going on in the text, but also let us realize that the word of God made, made flesh, which is Christ, when he... Um, by inspiration of the Spirit, um, had Matthew write these things, that it was done on purpose, and also when there were events that were taking place, such as the event we're going to read about, has a deeper meaning for the life of the church. And I want to draw some of that out so that we can draw application to what's being put in the Word here so that we can benefit from it in everything that we go through seeing that it went through these disciples. 
we see that the Lord, before this had taken place, had fed the 5,000. He took five fishes, or five loaves and two fishes, five loaves of bread and two fishes, and made them into so much food that it could feed the 5,000. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? My son, he plays basketball outside, and the neighbor said, Man, that guy's money. It's because he was making these swishing baskets. But could you imagine if you saw Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you had carnal thoughts towards what was taking place? Wouldn't you be saying, that's money. That's money. And that's where we get our whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And it's easy to fall into something like that. It's easy to want uh, material things, food to be fed. I could deceive the disciples... I'm inferring to the text or putting into, this is called eisegesis, but I know my own nature. I've spoken to others that have that nature. Man, that's money. He's making food out of very little food and feeding the 5,000. We could benefit from that. This man could take over the whole nation of Israel and we could conquer Rome. And so it's the, the temptation of wanting a social gospel. A social gospel, a gospel that can feed everyone and take care of everyone's problems. And that's, I believe, from my own experiences, they were thinking. And so the Lord will use this event that we're going to read about to teach them something other than the nature of the life of the believer and believers and the church age. Because the church age is nothing but sinners calling out to God saying, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And some of those times were, Lord, save me because I'm hungry. And what does he do? He brings food. Some of those times are, Lord, save me. I'm in trouble. I've been messing up. Lord, save me. I'm about to die. And some of our dear brothers and some of our dear sisters died. That doesn't mean they were saved. They were just brought up into glory. Because God will honor his word if we call out, Lord, save me. He will save. This is a compelling nature of Christ that he would go up and pray. And as our text reads straightway, when he went up to pray, he, he told his disciples, he constrained his disciples. That means he compelled them to go. He made them go. That's what the translations would say. He, they, he made them to go because he was going to separate himself and go pray while they went out into the midst of the sea, as our text says. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him onto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Every time you're compelled to do something, like today we heard from our dear deacon, that there is a drag queen story time event. And I pray that the Lord would compel every one of you to stand out there in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, who is our King, who is our head, and we be his body, to demonstrate that we are not for what you are trying to do to these children. 
It is the compelling nature of God's sovereign grace that causes men and women to do radical things. It gives them a radical faith to demonstrate the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. God is not mocked. That which we sow in the flesh, we'll also reap. If you think you're going to mock God by trying to put these things in front of children, you will pay the ultimate price of eternal damnation in hell. This is the compelling nature of Christ to compel his people to go and demonstrate the power that I was like this. I wanted it all. I was a sinner. Oh, man, if you knew what I did and what I was and who I, how I thought my life prior to salvation, you would understand. And I am simply here to demonstrate that that power saved me because I'm no better than the drag queen. I'm no better. And don't say that I am because I know what I am by nature. The only thing I got going for me is I had a sovereign God before eternity, before eternity, make an everlasting covenant ordered in all things to save me from my sin and my compelling nature because I've been saved by God's grace is to want to tell others that there is a way out. There is a person that saves. It's by his spirit that this will happen. I know that, but it is our duty It is our duty as the church to preach the gospel in season and out of season. And what a season it is, saints. May the compelling nature of Christ compel us to do exploits to those who would try and pervert that which God has created, both male and female. But let me get back to our text. This has always been the ethos of the church, so we see deeper and more spiritual things in the text that he would compel his disciples to get into a ship. Another way of uh, trans, uh, translating this Psalm 110 verse 3 is referred to as troops. He uses troops because we are indeed the troops, the church militant. This is in Psalm 110 verse 3. The King James Version reads, Thy people shall be willing in the day of your power. But another translation, and if you were to look at the Hebrew, you would find out that this means the troops, the army of God will be willing in the day of battle. And so our Lord is compelling his disciples to get into the ship to understand deeper things, that this is not all about being fed and seeing how God can open up heaven and turn five loaves and two fishes to feed a multitude. Get into the ship and go before him onto the other side. Now that's where we're going, isn't it, saints? We're on our way to the other side. We're born into this world and sinned and trespasses. God saves us, and we're on our way to the other side. And so that's why it's so important to give the gospel call, to trust in the Lord Jesus with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and to acknowledge him in all your ways, and he promises that he will direct your steps. But there are those who are called who reject that calling. Many are called, few are chosen. But they will have to go to the other side. And the other side is going to stand, you'll have to stand before a great white throne of judgment to see God Almighty on his throne and answer to him. Which would be scary, wouldn't it, if you didn't know Christ? But we are the church militant, we are the troops He makes us willing in the day of battle, and I can see nothing but battles taking place in the future, in our present day, especially when we have things going on as we just talked about. 
But these disciples are being called to see clearly, clearly this is not a social gospel. We know that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It's not simply to feed people and take care of their physical needs. It's to take care of their spiritual needs because we are all fallen and guilty before God because we are of that original sin where Adam fell our federal head. But we're called as a church as well. So I'm trying to parallel what they're going through and bring the church into the conversation as we're speaking. Does that make sense? We're called to see clearly through experience. We know that in the book of Acts, when this church business was just beginning, when all the disciples would be about their father's business, that the kingdom will not always be so easy. How Christ will get the disciples' attention and understanding after all these men will turn the world upside down. And if you're going to teach your disciples, if he's going to teach his disciples, he has to do it through their experiences. And what they're going to experience is that he's in control of this whole thing. Because they're going to be used, as we see in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, that they're going to turn the whole world upside down. God uses very small numbers to turn the whole world upside down. There was an uproar in Thessalonica. The Jews, however, became jealous. These were religious folks becoming jealous of the power of God, saving people. So they brought in some troublemakers from the marketplace. Man, that sounds familiar. (laughs) How come everyone's six foot tall and Caucasian in these events that take place when the cities are burning down? dressed in black, and they seem to be the ones... That's another subject. (laughs) But you can see that governments, religious rulers, whatever it may be, will use men to disrupt things so they can blame it. We were talking about this on Tuesday, conspiracy theories, and they do exist. Come, let us shed innocent blood that we may have one purse and prevail. That's your communist Marxism. But this has always been uh, a way to disrupt the nations, to disrupt God's people. Let us bring some troublemakers into the marketplace. They formed a mob and sent the city into an uproar. And they raided uh, this disciple Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas, hoping to bring them out to the people. But they could not find them, and they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city, officials shouting. They were shouting this. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. Now this here, as we're reading the text in Matthew, I wanted to read that so that you can understand these experiences that these disciples are going through would teach them that there's greater things to take place within the kingdom outside of just eating and drinking, and receiving gifts from God on a, on a physical level. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, his name is Jesus. And that's what we preach. There's a king. It's not Joe Biden. It's not Xi Jinping. It's not uh, Putin. It's not the guy in Ukraine. 
it's none of these world leaders, it's King Jesus. But let us learn from the text that we will go through things that our Lord will prepare us for so that we will have the ability, I pray that we do, to be able to not obey the decrees that go contrary to the word of God. In Romans chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, we're told that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. We fight for peace. That seems oxymoronic, but it's just the case. It seems like a paradox, but that's just the case. I am no more at peace than when I'm with the saints. It's the greatest place to be with God's people. And there is a sense of peace when everyone identifies as a sinner. It's like having a bunch of worms. You never see them fighting with one another, but they are together. And they're tilling the land. They're actually doing something so that something can be fruitful. We do not want to labor for the food which perishes, but we want the food that endures to everlasting life. So when he had sent the multitude away after they had eaten, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there. This is verse 23 of our text in Matthew 14. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea tossed, with waves, for the wind was contrary. Now why would the Lord depart and go and pray and leave these men to themselves? Well, this ship can be representative of a gospel church, a local body. And you can read the epistles, Church of the Thessalonians, the Corinthian church, the Philippian church, all these churches had a group of core believers that had gone through many experiences together, whether it was persecution or being without food, raiment, clothing, suffering as the first century church. But these things are designed, and what we see in our text, that this was designed to create a bond between them. That's why I say in uh, sub point B, creating close bonds and camaraderie. I can tell you of my experience of 30 years being involved in the church with Pastor Jesse. We have been through many battles, trials and tribulations, many heartaches, many griefs, but a lot of joy. But what it's done is it's created a bond between my pastor and myself, and that's what happens in the church with many of you brethren, many of you brethren, and sisters too. And that's just the way God will create a a solid church of believers because you go through experiences together. And this is how God will form a team that will be able to go up against, as we read in Acts, jealous religious leaders or a government that promotes uh, evil and wicked things, calling it good. How God will form a team that can endure the trial together in 1 John 3.14, we read it this way. You can just listen. 
we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And so that's what's created when you go through trials. It's love, man. How do you know you love your brothers? Because you've been through all these trials together and you've stuck it out. You didn't try and hurt your brother. You might have had disagreements. Heck, me and Brother Herman, we argue all the time on the phone, but we, we grow from it. How are we going to sharpen each other? You know? I can think of Brother Randolph. We had our disagreements. Many of you. But it's in love. And it sharpens us and it creates a bond that only these things that we go through can produce. And it's a wonderful thing. Even history would teach us this when we read about the time of David being chased by Saul in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 2. You don't have to go there, just listen. There was this cave, it was called the Cave of Adullam. And I used to refer to the uh, Oddfellows Temple on 1349 Hayes Street in San Leandro as the Cave of Adullam. If you're ever there... You know, it was a struggle to get down and it was a struggle to get up. But once you were down there, it was cool because you were underneath the ground. You were in the cave of the Oddfellows Temple, which I called the Cave of Adullam. What's funny about that is our kids would take those little trinkets they left behind with the little all-seeing eye and the little triangles and stuff and the secret meetings they would have. And our kids would be running around with these things and we'd have to return them. But it was, it was a good place of fellowship. And we were thankful to have such a place, and it was humbling. But David would have this uh, place where he would escape with his 400 men to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his fathers heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone that was in distress, any distressed out people today? Everyone that was in debt, crickets. (laughs) we're 31 trillion dollars in debt folks lord have mercy everyone that was in debt everyone that was discontented gathered to him and isn't that the life of the church when we gather to christ are we all in distress in some way or another are we all in debt we're in sin debt but we got an answer to that We have what's called the 50-year jubilee, which is Christ himself, where all our debts are forgiven. Now, for government entities that may be inclined to listen to this guy up here thinking we're trying to rebel against them and go against the house, we suggest to you, you have a 50-year jubilee and relieve every one of their physical debts and life will be a lot happier. But I guarantee you it'll only be a year and we'll be in debt again. Because that's the nature of everyone. Uh, What we need is a spiritual jubilee where all of our sin debt has been forgiven by the person and work of Jesus Christ. The sin debt. But God has always had a group of people, a small number, fighting his battles. This is to strengthen the church. Again, in the book of Acts, because remember, where we are in the text, this is boot camp. This is boot camp that they're going through in the ship. But it's all designed to strengthen the church. And when they had preached the gospel in the city, to that city, they made many disciples and returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and strengthened, and strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying this. This is what they told each other. We must... 
through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. There is this worldly unrest, and there's this heavenly rest that we desire, and we labor to enter into the rest. Is that what we do? Laboring to enter into the rest. We talk about retirement. Retirement doesn't exist here. It exists in glory. And that's where eternal rest will take place. And so we must, dear saints, go through many tribulations. This is how we enter into the kingdom. So when he had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So you can see in the first century church as to what they dealt with is what we will deal with if we're not dealing with it now. And we have been dealing with it on many levels. And God is doing this to captive, captivate his people because they were in captivity. So he takes those who are in captivity, captive by the world system, he takes them out of that dark system, and he puts them in his own captivity. He captive, we become captive in the struggle for Christ. The timeless questions that God's people had throughout all of his word, and we see it put forth in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, is simply this. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in his garment, in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know it? Do you know who that son is? The Lord Jesus Christ. See, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And they understand that this son in which Proverbs was talking about was the son of God who made heaven and earth. And without him, nothing was made. What a wonderful question to ask and what a wonderful answer to hear that the son of God is the one who does all these things. And what we see it here. The ship now in the midst of the sea, verse 24 of our text in Matthew chapter 14, tossed with waves and wind was contrary. That word contrary means the winds were warring against their ship. Warring against their ship. You see, the wind is not always on our backside. We have a trail. Me and my wife walk. It's about two miles. I can finally fit into this thing. You see, we're trying not to be a social gospel. You've got to thin down. So, but we've been so blessed. The spiritual soul shall be made fat. That's how I justify myself. <laughs> but I love, you know, humor has its place. I don't want you guys to be so, and I want to make sure you guys are alive. So laughing and crying is acceptable here. Um, two miles we walk, but if we go one way, the winds are always pushing as we're walking forward but if we go the other way it's always at our backs and it's so much easier when the wind is at your back you guys probably know that but the contrary winds that we experience in this world are two there's two that i have found and that is the contrary winds of life the world system and the contrary winds of false doctrine And these are the two things that will press up and war against the believer. I know, 
I know, out of God saving me when I was 18 and going through all that I've gone through, that God brings out people out of these two things. He brings them out. He takes them out. And I don't want to get to the climactic uh, part of this uh, sermon, but he brings them out, and there's a reason why. The contrary winds of life and doctrine. We know that because we're taught by Paul when he taughts that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Wow, there's some people out there that do that stuff to us. That's what the word says. We come out of this. And they would learn it and we would learn it. That's why this word is here for us to look at the ship that we're seeing in view in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, and the wind was contrary, warring against the direction to to where they were going, which was the other side. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, that is Christ Jesus walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Now, if anyone has any experience in maritime uh, stories or stories that have to do with the ocean, would know there's a lot of superstition that goes on with the fishermen, a lot of superstition that goes out with those that have sailed around the world. They'll tell you stories. We heard of the Bermuda Triangle, planes and ships being sucked in and vortex down, and they go to another place, another galaxy far, far away. But that's the superstitious nature that exists with us. We want to make up stories. But we know that this was the Lord Jesus that was walking on the water. But they still, as men, would be superstitious to believe that it was a spirit and not the Lord. Now, as we read this, the winds being contrary to life and doctrine, as we see in this boat, these dear disciples were working together in warfare while Christ is interceding. So you see that picture there that as contrary winds will blow against the church, Christ is ever living to intercede for us. Amen? Amen. Praise God. We're seeing this in the text that this is the life, this is the ethos of the church. This has always been that we will always feel or sense the contrary winds of life and doctrine. The superstitious nature of fishermen and sailors throughout all history. But we know that this sea in which uh, Christ is walking on has a a deeper spiritual meaning. And the sea is often referenced as the place of the world. And we have to traverse this ocean. We read in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, we see this picture that there is this beast coming out of this Uh, ocean Uh, the sea represents the world we see when john the apostle on the island of patmos was writing under inspiration of the spirit he said then i stood on the sand of the sea and i saw a beast rising out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name so we see the beast of politics coming out of the sea which is contrary winds to the gospel and to the children of God. We see the beast of religion coming out as well. 
these two actually will join together, as we've seen throughout all of history, to come against the church as a contrary and warring wind against the gospel. In Revelation 17, verse 15, we see that it's clearly stated that this ocean in view is bigger than just Christ walking on the water, but it is a picture of uh, peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. We know when creation took place that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit moved over the water. And when God saw, he said, let there be light and there was light. That light is Christ. So Christ is the one that lights. What we're seeing in view here is the, is the world and he's walking on this, on this water. It's an amazing thing. Ephesians, when Paul was talking to the Ephesians church, he said, this is the key word, you can put it up there, Ephesians 6.12. These contrary winds also have to do with wrestling, fighting, and warring against spiritual things. The key word that I would say is we. It's not done alone. This is the church that is fighting against these things. For we, the church, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spirit principalities against powers against rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places so when we talk about having a peaceful rally we're gonna have a peaceful rally but do you know there's war in heaven as you stand there in testimony of christ there's a war taking place it's not a flesh and blood that's principalities controlling evil things those who are controlled by the prince of the power of the air, in whom we all had our conversation with in time past, fulfilling the lust of our flesh and of our mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, fitted as others. But God in mercy has taken us out of that, and now we wrestle against it, the contrary winds of life and doctrine. Now we get into this portion of scripture in verse 26 and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea they were troubled saying it is a spirit and they cried out for fear but straightway jesus spoke or spake unto them saying be of good cheer it is i be not afraid don't be afraid all the troubles that take place in this world don't be afraid but do we have a peter in the house We have some Peters, and Peter thought it wise to ask the Lord to walk on this water. Oh, Peter, Peter who would write, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was used in such a mighty way for the kingdom and for the church. That small rock, not the Roman Catholic Church rock, but he wasn't the first pope. Um, but he was a pillar, and he was an apostle who would have to learn some things. And where was he looking? At first, 
He was looking to Christ, but then his eyes started to drift, as we see in the text. Our Lord is so merciful, he says, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, now remember, all the disciples are watching this. You'll be watching it too. And this is interesting because we know that in the book of Mark and John, the same context of what we're talking about, Peter's not mentioned, but he's mentioned by Matthew. And we never want to laugh when we see our enemies stumble or our friends. It's not, it's an embarrassing thing, but we're going to learn something. It was a humbling thing. The fact is, is that he walked on water. That should be commended. Dude walked on water. But he ain't Christ. Now, I'm a surfer. I surf big waves. I had a board under me, but, you know, sometimes I get plummeted and have to experience the great power of the sea. And the sea is a very powerful place. But he, he walked on water, and that's something to be commended. He had enough faith to think that he could walk on water and, and just keep doing it and everything would be good. But he had to be taught something. Peter was come down out of the ship, he was, and he walked on water to go to the Lord Jesus. But when he saw the winds boisterous, when he saw the contrary winds of life and doctrine, now I'm vacillating between Peter and perhaps one of us, he begin to sink. Who are you looking at, Peter? The Bible tells us very clearly in Isaiah, you can turn there in your Bibles to chapter 45, verses 22 through 25. The Lord tells everyone to look to him. That's salvation, is simply a look. To look to God. And he says it very clearly. Look to me. And be saved. Now he's not saying look to whatever's going out there for any way of salvation. It doesn't exist there. It's going to trip you up. It's going to cause you to sink. But if you continually look to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're running the race, you leave the things which are behind, you leave them behind, you do not look back. You continually look to the mark of the high calling which is found in Christ Jesus. And he promises, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And from time to time, we all tend to want to take our eyes off of Christ and look at other things, and then the sinking begins. The Lord, the Lord our God is our righteousness and our strength. To him men shall come, and they will not be ashamed. Who are incensed against him. We were opposed to God, but God came anyway and saved us. But how much more when we realize we're sinking in sin. The Lord and all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. If you're looking to God for salvation, you shall be saved. Boisterous winds, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried, saying, Lord, save me. What to pray when all else fails? What are you going to pray? I'm talking real talk with you guys. 
all right? Because everyone in here is going to leave this building, and I don't want you to go, that was a good message. I want you to say, I learned something today. And it was simply this. The man up there said, if I call upon the name of the Lord, Lord save me, that he's going to save me. So whatever predicament you're in, and you're going to be in some, just say, Lord, save me. I will never forget, and I always bring this up from time to time. It's almost redundant, but I was in second grade. And I had a teacher named Mrs. Robinson. And we would run that classroom like I don't know what. She was a black woman, strong woman. Heaven opened up. Because she looked to heaven as we were all running amok in that class. Heaven opened up when she said, Lord, give me strength. And I looked and I said, what was that? And I never forgot. And God put his fingerprint on me and it never went away. How much more, how much more, dear saints, Will heaven open up on your deathbed? There was one guy, he was being crucified with Christ, and all he said was, remember me. How much more? If you shall call up in your desperate need, in your desperate hour, Lord, save me. I'm talking about in all of your sin. I'm not talking about, I went to church five times a week, and I'm feeling pretty good because I gave tithes. No, I'm talking about calling out to God in your mess. And this can be without, it can be whatever you want to put in your mess, whatever it is, husbands, wives, children, parents, and on and on and on, whatever mess it is, Lord, save me. Lord, save us. It's a simple prayer that anyone can understand. Lord, save me. And it's not something where we're saying, Lord, I accept you. No. It's saying, Lord, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. I can't do anything to make this right. So I'm saying, Lord, save me. There is power in that prayer. It is indeed the sinner's prayer. And it's only three words. It's not paragraphs. It's not something at the back of the Gideon Bible. It's Lord, save me. It's a powerful prayer, and God honors that prayer. Immediately. Immediately. The Lord didn't wait. Immediately, he stretched forth his hand. For you, Lord, as we read in Psalm 86, verse 5, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. All right, so take that verse and put it in your back pocket. And if you ever need it, you pull it out and you look at it. Because it's true. It's a promise. The righteousness of God's judgment. The righteousness, as Isaiah 65 verse 1 says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. 
Did you call upon the Lord? Or did he call to you? We don't have the ability to create or make something happen. We're not God. God will save us when we don't even ask. But I'm telling you who know the truth. I'm telling you who came in here today thinking you're just going to hear some good message and that's all it was going to be. That even you who don't know the Lord, there may be a day when you'll remember there was a man I remember and he said something out of the Bible that if I call upon the name of the Lord, I shall be saved. Lord, save me. Call upon me in the day of trouble, God says. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Love is conditional, dear saints. It's a conditional love. God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. What does he get in return? Worship. Worship. And we're going to see that. And we see he reaches down from heaven and pulls you out. Where is your will in that? The ceasing wind comes from Christ. The ceasing winds come from Christ. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O you of little faith, where did you doubt? Isaiah also said it this way, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, why do I bring that up? Because there's this thing called the gospel ship, which is symbolic of what we're seeing here. It's analogous of what we're seeing here in the context. This gospel ship that these disciples in is what we're all in when we believe the gospel. And our gospel ship, we sing a song. It says, I have good news to bring. And that is what I, why I sing. All my joy with you, I'd like to share. I'm going to take a trip in that good old gospel ship and go sailing through the air. I'm going to take a trip in the old gospel ship going far beyond the sky. I'm going to shout and sing until all heaven rings when I bid this world goodbye. If you are ashamed of me, God says, you have no cause to be, for with Christ I am an heir. Too much fault you find, you're sure to be left behind when I go sailing through the air. I'm going to take a trip in the old gospel ship, I'm going far beyond the sky. I'm going to shout and sing until the heavens ring. When I'm bidding this world goodbye, I can hardly wait. And I know all not, I'll not be late because I'm going to spend my time in prayer. And then when my ship comes, when it comes in, I'm going to leave this world of sin and go sailing through the air. I'm going to take a trip in this old gospel ship I'm going far beyond the sky. I'm going to shout and sing until the heavens ring when I'm bidding this world goodbye. When I'm bidding this world goodbye, goodbye because I'm in this gospel ship. Are you in the gospel ship? Even when you attempt to jump out of the ship like our dear brother Peter and you cry out, Lord, save me, he reaches down in mercy and pulls you out. This world is filled with baptisms, of every sort, you will go down, but you will surely come up. 
Who is the master of the sea? Who is this master of the sea that controls the waves and the winds contrary to our lives as gospel believers? O thou of little faith, where did you doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Who is the master of the sea? Earlier on in the book of Matthew, in verse, uh, chapter, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 27, they knew he was the master of the sea. This, is, this happened earlier when he would say, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, that they marveled at Christ, and even Peter, who's going through this experience of sinking and being saved, they marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him. See, they had to come to learn who Christ truly was. He was the God-man. And so the men marveled, saying, who can this be? But they would learn more, that this was more than just a man. It was the God-man who was able to save men and women and children from their sin. Do you remember in Luke chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, you don't have to turn there, when they were fishing and Simon answered to the master, To our Lord, he said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. You see, he thought he was a master fisherman and knew a little more than the Lord. Yet alone, I remember I was a kid and uh, my dad would take me fishing out on the wharf. He'd take me to Catholic Mass and I'd be praying, Lord, Lord, give me a fish, give me a fish. I want to bring up a big fish. I want to be that guy that's put up in the little tackle place where he's got this big fish. It never happened. I think I got a little fish like this. Like, Lord, what's the problem here? They're supposed to answer my prayers. I didn't realize that I was the fish. And Peter had to realize the same thing, that he was the fish. We're making you fishers of men. You guys are fish. Seems kind of fishy. (laughs) But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let it down. I've been doing this all my life. I know fishing. And when they had done this, they had caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the, the other boat to come and help them. This is the gospel church, see? The gospel church, we need some help sometimes. We're always toiling outside. Who's going to put up and put this stuff and put it down? It's been a toil, but we have to work together. So they signal to their partners. And you'll use, we have Way of Grace Church out there in Sacramento. Another gospel ship sailing in this sea. We have the Tracy work. We've got to pray for these. We've got to be there for them. Because perhaps the Lord will save a bunch of fish. And that's our prayer. And, the, and these boats were filled so much that they began to sink. And when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He was a sinful man for thinking that he knew better than his master. May he do that to all of us and convict us to truly understand that a simple prayer like, Lord, save me, could do wonderful things for people. 
Through him all things were made. We read in John 1, 3, Christ made everything. He made that sea. He made the fish in the sea. He made everything that was in it. And without him, nothing, nothing was made that has been made. And this is what Peter would come to learn and all of his dear children. Subpoint B, who is the calm, cool, and collected one? When everything seems to be going crazy, that's another C, by the way. There is the calm, cool, collected one, which is the Lord. He is Christ, our peace. He is our peace, who has both won and has broken down the middle wall of separation. See, Christ was up praying for his disciples that they would go through an experience and that they would see him as the answer to all their toils, that he ever lives to intercede. And he'll entertain you to come walk on the water. That water was as hard as marble for Peter. But he took his eyes off Christ. Salvation is a look. But he was making sure they understand that the life of the church, when you look back at these experiences that you go through, it's the life of the church. There are times when you're going to sink and you're going to have to call upon the Lord and he will save you. He's our peace. In Mark 4.39, may, may the Lord arise, may he move and may he go and do things for us because he rebukes the winds and he says, peace be still and the wind will cease and there will be great calming. I find that the most on Sundays. There's a certain calm I experience when I go throughout all the week to get here because that's the hardest thing for anyone who's going to get up and speak before God's people. Getting here is quite a challenge. Worship and deeper trust. So all these things will produce worship. And that's what we learn in our text, that when they were in the ship, they came and they worshipped him, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now they're starting to see clearly who the Lord Jesus Christ is to them. We profit from our trials. Do you believe that? There is profiting that comes through these experiences. That's why Peter, or John, Peter would come to learn, but uh, James, actually, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, this is the profiting, you profit in patience. And then you are to have this patience, which is given to you through the trial, to have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking nothing. It takes a long time to learn these things, doesn't it? A long, long, long time. My wife will tell you, 40 years, I'm still learning some things. God is so good to us, isn't he? And all this you greatly rejoice through now for a little while. You may have had to suffer grief in all of your trials. This is Peter speaking because he knows he's been through these things. These have come so that they may prove your genuine genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by the fire may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Isn't this what we see in our text? 
that Christ was revealed in this trial and they gave him praise. They knew it was worth more than any gold, any earthly blessing. It was Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who would save them from their sins to be with him forevermore where our tears will be wiped away, joys will never end, we will be shouting hallelujah and your voices won't crack and everyone will be in love in the purest form. There'll be no sin anymore. It's a place where only righteousness will dwell. And it's because of what Christ has done for us. He took all of our sins upon himself on that cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was the very one that the winds of life and doctrine were contrary to from the time he was conceived until the time he was crucified. He did this also that we could have access to to God the Father, and become dear children, adopted in the beloved. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, save me! He will reach down. Lord, save me! He will come down. He's come down. Because there's always been a remnant chosen by God in the covenant of grace that he comes in and saves. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Sing in trouble again because God loves to hear his people sing in the night. The more the wind rages, the more you feel your anchor holds you. It is the bold Christian who can sing God's sonnets in the darkness How despicable our troubles and trials will seem when we look back upon them. Wait a little longer, all beloved. How despicable our troubles and our trials will seem when we look back upon them, looking to them here in the prospect. They seem immense, but when we get to heaven, they will seem to be nothing. They will be like nothing. They're so small. That's why we're told to look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. When our, our nights are so dark, remember there is not a night that shall not have a morning and that morning is to come by and by. Every morning presents itself as new mercies. When the iron bolt, which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison, needs a heavenly hand to push it back, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon sinks till Jesus takes him by the hand. Christian, when you are dry and have nothing to wet your palate, go to your God, ask him to pour some joy down upon you, and then you will get more joy up from and into your heart. Remember, dear saints, If you remember anything today, you can call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, save me, and he will save you. Amen. Amen.